Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the book of Revelation, as we'll be looking at chapter 11 and verses 3 to 13. Revelation chapter 11 and verses 3 to 13. Revelation chapter 11 and verses 3 to 13. Please then, brothers and sisters, hear with me the reading of God's inspired and inerrant Word. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed and and to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here! And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Thus far is a reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, if there is uh, one thing that chapter 11 depicts for us, I would say that it depicts for us the victory of the church through suffering, which is accomplished by the power of God according to His eternal plan. Verse 11 depicts something for us. What I think it depicts for us is the victory of the church through suffering, which is accomplished by the power of God according to His eternal plan. This is the very reason why last week we read about how the people of God needed to be measured. The only way that they could fulfill their prophetic call when the Romans were against them and when when many of the Jews were against them and when their neighbors were against them and when their co-workers were against them and when even some in the church were against them, the only way they could fulfill their prophetic call was in and through the power of God. But it is through this revelation that this plan is made known now to God's people. 
Right? So that, by having this revelation, the church may go out and confront the world with the Word of God, with all confidence, right? knowing what God's plan is for His people. Right? Knowing that no one can stop and thwart what God has in store for those who belong to Him. And this sometimes, though, can be hard. Right? This sometimes can be difficult, even though we know the truth. Right? Because oftentimes we view things from our humanly perspective. And as we view things from our humanly perspective, it oftentimes seems as if the church is losing, doesn't it? It seems as if the world is winning. Right? Many times throughout history and in different parts of the world, right, governments and regimes and religions have tried to stamp out the Christian faith and the Christian people. And at many points throughout history, it has appeared as if they were victorious in doing so. But what we see is time and time again, right? every time that the world thinks that they have won, the church rises up from the dust and ashes to, to greater numbers and greater influence and a greater witness in the world around them. And we have many examples of this throughout history. This is one reason why the early church father Tertullian could write that it is the blood of the martyrs, which is the seed of the church. Right? Because he understood the very thing that I just said that we see going on throughout all of history. The victory of the church comes through suffering, right? which is accomplished according to the power of God, according to the plan of God. Right? This is what we constantly see. There are so many examples of this. Think about in the early centuries of the church as Rome tortured and humiliated Christians by, by killing them before cheering mobs. Right? They, they killed Christians for sport in arenas. Right, to the, to the roars and the cheers of, of unbelievers who looked on in celebration. All because these Christians refused to say that Caesar is Lord. But what happened? Right, what happened when they did that? It oftentimes had, had the opposite effect on many of the Jews and the Romans. Right, instead of destroying the Christian faith, and instead of destroying the Christian witness, what did it do? It caused the Christian faith to expand and to rise and to grow at a rapid rate. So much so that by the beginning of the 4th century, it is the Christian faith that now dominates the Roman Empire. We see that. The, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. William Hendrickson, in his commentary in the book of Revelation, gives to us another example of of what I'm describing here. And he gives us an example a little more closer to us in history. He uses the example of, of communist China. Right? There was a time in China in which it appeared that Christianity was dead. Right? It appeared that, that the Christian faith had been wiped totally and completely from that land. So much so that in 1960, Madame Mao could declare that Christianity, Christianity in China is dead. And they arrested Christians and they executed Christians and they re-indoctrinated them into communism. But 60 years later, the churches rose to great numbers in China through the proclamation of the Gospel as it victoriously now sweeps through that land and according to some has brought about the salvation 
of upwards near a hundred million of the Chinese people to saving faith in Christ. This is the exact same thing, brothers and sisters, that I want us to see being explained to us in our text today. Right? This is a picture of a reality that we continue to see throughout history time and time again since the ascension of Christ and which will continue to occur until Christ returns to bring ultimate victory to His church. But this is why He provides us this picture. He provides us this picture so that we might know this truth. That although at times we may be discouraged because we see the church decimated or we see the church look as if it is defeated, He gives us this picture to tell us the church will never be destroyed. Will never be destroyed. And we begin to see this in our text today as we pick up in verse 3, having left off last week at verse number 2. Back last week, it was revealed to John that the, the church will be protected by God's presence while the ungodly were to persecute them over the, the span of these 42 months. And now we read in verse 3, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now this takes us to our first point this morning, which is the two witnesses. The the two witnesses. Now I submit to you right away off the bat that we take these two witnesses not to be two particular individuals, but rather to be uh, these two witnesses are symbolic for the people of God. The two witnesses are symbolic for the church. Again, remembering that this is not a, a literal narrative, right? But these are pictures conveying to us a reality. Because if you want to take this as a literal narrative, then you, you likewise have to look at verse 4 and believe that the two witnesses are two olive trees, literally, and two lampstands, literally. And I don't think that we want to do that. In addition, we ought to see these figures as figurative or symbolic for the church based on the book of Revelation itself. Look with me over at uh, chapter 13 and verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Look at chapter 11, verse 7. Speaking about the two witnesses. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast rises from the bottomless pit and what will make war on them and conquer and kill them. And so what do we see here? That in chapter 13, verse 7, two witnesses is substituted for saints. Two witnesses is substituted for saints. They're describing the same event. Right? That the beast is going to make war on them. In one place it's talking about two witnesses, in the other place it's talking about the saints, which demonstrates to us that the two witnesses are representative of the church, of the body of Christ, of the saints. But then we have to ask, if the two witnesses are symbolic of the church, why the number two? Why not seven? Right? Seven is a number of completion or, or totality or perfection. Or why not just the number one? Well, for many reasons. The first reason that the church is depicted as two witnesses instead of seven or one is based on the Old Testament law right? concerning the validity of one's witness. We can think about Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. Here we read this. A single witness 
shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that is committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And so we have to see that the church is represented by two witnesses because what it means to convey to us is that they now have legal validity in God's courtroom as they declare salvation and judgment to the world. Right? A single witness will not suffice. Right? The church must, exer- must be represented by these, these two witnesses so that they might have legal validity. Right? Their, their testimony is to be received by God in His heavenly courtroom. Now, we see this in other places as well. Uh, think about, think about the, the keys of the kingdom. Right? The keys of the kingdom have been given to the church. To do what? To open the kingdom and to shut the kingdom. Right? To open the kingdom. And primarily, one, or one, of the, one of the ways that that is done primarily is through the minister's proclamation of the gospel. Right? It's through the proclamation of the gospel, through the preaching of, of peace and pardon, that the kingdom of God is open to sinners. But at the same time, it's the preaching of, of condemnation and judgment and the wrath of God that closes the kingdom to those who disbelieve. And so in, in preaching, according to the Word of God, based upon the authority that God has given the church, this is why Jesus can then say that whatever the church binds on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Right? Because it is, it is done according to God's authority and God's Word. We have a, a valid witness in the courtroom of God. And so what we do here on earth is, 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 is as if it was done already in heaven. And so having two witnesses establishes legal validity of the church's testimony against the world. Right? That's the first thing that we need to see. But also, having two witnesses likewise emphasizes for us uh, the missionary task of the church. That is what two witnesses likewise symbolizes. The, the missionary nature of the church. What does Jesus say in Matthew 28? To, to go out and to make disciples. Go out and make disciples. And what example of, of going out and making disciples do we have in Scripture? Well, think about Luke chapter 10, verse 1. As Jesus appoints the 72, right? He, he sends them out to towns before He gets there. And He says, go and, and preach the message of the kingdom. And how does He send them out? He sends them out two by two. And so the two witnesses likewise are symbolic of the prophetic call that the church has. right? To, to witness to the world the Gospel, which is the way that God has decreed that sinners will come to saving faith. It is through the, the proclamation of the Gospel. And it's not until the church has finished that prophetic call that the end will come. This is what we're told in Matthew Chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus says to the apostles, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So this is what the church is doing. Right now we are sent out into the world to to prophesy or to preach the Word of God right to all nations, to all peoples. And not until the prophetic call is fulfilled will the end come. Now, we are told that the witnesses who represent the church will prophesy for 1,260 days. Now, we have to ask ourselves, then, what, 
what time period is this referring to? Right? What is this 1260 days? Well, I'd ask for you to look quickly with me over to chapter 12 of Revelation and we'll look at verses 5 and 6. So, Revelation chapter 12, verses 5 and 6. Here we read this. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now what we need to understand is that this is a a reference back to Psalm 2, which is about Jesus. Where in Psalm 2 we are told that He will rule the nations with a rod of iron. But what is the very next thing that that we read in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5. He will rule all the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to His throne. That's the ascension right there. That's the ascension, what we've been talking about all along. That is describing our Lord's ascension. And once the ascension occurs, what happens? Right, Christ's people are said to be nourished for 1260 days. The same amount of time that we read in our text today that the church is to prophesy. 1260 days. And so I ask you here today, how long is the church to be nourished? How long is the church to be protected by our Lord? Until the end. Until the end. And so likewise, just as the 42 months of suffering at the hands of the wicked world, depicted what's going on during the church age, so too, 1260 days depicts the entire church age. Starting with the ascension of Christ, as we read about in Revelation 12.5, all the way until Christ's return. And so what we need to see happening from last week's text and this week's text is really this. We see two things occurring simultaneously. Right at, at, one, at one time, or in one aspect, what's happening, as we read about last week, is that the world is persecuting the church, trying to silence and destroy God's people. Yet all the while, God's people are being nourished by the Lord, and strengthened by the Lord, and protected by the Lord, so that it may fulfill its prophetic call to the world. And then what we will see is that the end of the age will come as Christ returns to gather His church for glory. That's what we see going on here. Now, the question must arise within your minds. Well, last week we read 42 months. This week we read 1260 days. What's the point? They're the same periods of time. Why are they different? We don't know. Ultimately, that's the answer. We don't know. Uh, it could be, it could be, because many times battles are measured in months. Where the, the daily task of the church is to proclaim the Word, and so it's measured in days. And so the, the, the battle that's taking place with the church trying to, or excuse me, with the world trying to trample the church, it's measured in 42 months, but the, the church's task of preaching God's Word every single day is correlates to 1260 days because it's our daily task of the church to constantly be proclaiming God's Word, recognizing that every day could be the last day. 
Right? Every day could be the last. Christ could return. And then there is no more chances to hear the Word and to repent and to believe. And so with much urgency, the church daily, day by day, proclaims the Word. Now their clothing also tells us something about their message. The two witnesses are said to be dressed in sackcloth. Well, what is the meaning of sackcloth? What is sackcloth symbolic of? Really, it's symbolic of, of inward grief. And it's symbolic of repentance of sin. I mean, think back to our study in the book of Jonah. If you remember in Jonah chapter 3, when Jonah arrives in Nineveh, what does he do? He comes proclaiming, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. What does Nineveh do? They call for a fast. They believe. They clothe themselves in sackcloth, and they sit in dust and ashes demonstrating their repentance. And so we see that, that sackcloth is symbolic of repentance. But it's also symbolic of mourning. Of mourning, of inward grief. Think about Jacob in Genesis chapter 37. Right? We're told Jacob clothes himself in sackcloth and mourns when his sons come back without Joseph but only bring to him his robe. He clothes himself in sackcloth and mourns. And so, these two witnesses wear sackcloth as they preach the Gospel and as they call sinners to repentance. And at the same time, they mourn over the judgment that is going to fall upon those who disbelieve and who will not trust in God's Word. Now, what we also see, brothers and sisters, is that the the two witnesses are patterned after Moses and Elijah. The two witnesses are patterned after Moses and Elijah. Look at verse 6 quickly with me. We're told that the two witnesses have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And so... Here they're portrayed as being able to wield these miraculous signs of judgment upon the world. Right? Patterned after who? Moses and Elijah. Right? It was Moses who turned water into blood. It was Elijah who, who shut up the sky for three and a half years. Now, it is these two witnesses that are also said to be two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord. Now, this is a reference or a quotation really from uh, the book of Zechariah. If you would like to, I'd ask that you turn with me to Zechariah chapter 4 together. Zechariah chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1 of Zechariah 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? 
Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and you shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Later on in the text, what we'll see is that the two olive trees are later interpreted to be uh, the Lord's two anointed. The Lord's two anointed ones. And the context of Zechariah, really three and four, suggests that these two figures are first Zerubbabel, uh, who was a royal, uh, pre, who was a, a royal kingly figure, uh, who was commissioned with rebuilding God's temple, and the other figure that the context of the passage suggested being is Joshua, uh, who was a priest and who was to lead the worship of God's temple. And so here the two witnesses in Zechariah 4 are portrayed as, as kingly and priestly, who we are told then in Zechariah 4.14 this, These are the two anointed ones who are to stand by the Lord of the whole earth. That's exactly what we read in verse 4 of our text today, isn't it? Look at verse 4 once more of Revelation 11. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now this further, I believe, demonstrates then the, the corporate identity of the two witnesses. Right? That they are not two individuals, but rather they are representative of the body of Christ. Because I ask you, how is the church described throughout the book of Revelation? How are they described? Think back to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Of the church, John says, to, to Him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us what? A kingdom, priests to His God and Father. And so what we need to see is that this imagery here depicts how the church witnesses the message to the world that we have been given to declare. And that is as kingly priests before God. Right? That is how the Word is declared before the world. Now, one additional text that may be alluded to in verse 5 is Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 14. Look at verse 5 real quick with me of chapter 11. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now, in Jeremiah 5.14, Jeremiah is given words of judgment to declare and this is what we read. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire. And the people would. And the fire shall consume them. Right? And so we ought to see that this is not talking about literal fire consuming somebody that comes from their mouth, but rather what it, what it conveys to us, what it portrays for us, is that whenever the Word of God is proclaimed by the power of God, that God Himself has the power with that Word to save or to condemn. right? To redeem or to judge with that Word. We also learn then, brothers and sisters, that it is by the witness of the church that God protects His people. It's by the witness of the church God protects His people. As we see here, 
That it's through the proclamation of the Word that God will overcome our enemies. Right? It's not through battle, through physical battle, through killing that God overcomes our enemies. It is through the, the proclamation of the Word, through the fire coming through the church's mouth as they proclaim salvation and judgment to the world. This too is also why the church is portrayed then as lampstands as well. What are lampstands? What do lamps do? Right? They reflect light out to the world, don't they? This is the same thing that the two witnesses do, that the church do. Right? We are to be a light unto the world for Christ. Right? We are to reflect the, the glory of God to this world. To be light in an age of darkness in which people have their eyes blinded by their sin. This is why Jesus says of John the Baptist in chapter 5 of, the, of, of John 5, verse 35, He says this of John, He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in His light. You see, the church, just like John the Baptist, is to be a light unto the nations. We are to allow that light of Christ to reflect from us to the world in, in all that we say and in all that we do. Likewise then, brothers and sisters, what these opening verses ought to teach us is how important prayer is to the church then as well. It ought to teach us how important prayer is as the body of Christ, which coincides with our priesthood. Because it was through the fervent prayers of of Elijah that the skies and the waters were shut out and the, and the drought occurred for three and a half years. Which demonstrates what to us as well? That as the church, we have no less power than the prophets of old. This is why James can say to the, the body of Christ this in James chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Who's the example that he gives to us? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three and a half years and it did not rain on the earth. Right? You see that by the power of the Spirit, we have no less power than Elijah had of old. And so we wonder oftentimes, why does the church in this world seem so impotent and so powerless? Why well, submit to you, it's because we do not pray fervently enough. Brothers and sisters, if you desire change, if you want to, de- if you desire change in your family, to see the, 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 your young ones converted, if you want to see change amongst your friends, if you want to see change in your city, in your society, if you want to see change within the ungodly laws that our governments establish. If you want to see change in your own hearts, because you're dealing with your own ungodly, wicked passions, or because you too easily give in to certain sins, if you want to see that change occur, then brothers and sisters, we must be people who are devoted to fervent prayer. That is what we learn here. For it's in these verses that we see the power of the witnessing church in the world. We see the power of the church in the world. But then we read in verse 7 this, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. This leads us to our second point in this morning, which is 
The war against the two witnesses. The war against the two witnesses. Now this phrase in verse 7, right at the beginning, and when they have finished their testimony, demonstrates to us that all that occurs from verse 7 to 13 occurs at the end of history. Remember again Matthew 24.14 that the Gospel must be proclaimed to all the nations and then the end comes. What do we read here? After the whole testimony of the Gospel has gone, gone forth, the testimony is completed. We see here then we're dealing with the end to come. The end of history. What we should also understand or what we also should be drawn back to as we read this opening verse is is chapter 6 and verses 9 to 11. If you remember there, the martyred saints cry out to the Lord, O Lord, how long before you vindicate your people? And what did the Lord say there? He said, rest a little while until the full number of your fellow servants and brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Here, brothers and sisters, is the completion. That is what we see here in verse 8. And so both texts, our text in Revelation 11 as well as in Revelation chapter 6, portray for us the killing of the saints by an antagonistic world because of their witness bearing for Christ. But remember, the church is going to be protected through this all. The church cannot be spiritually defeated, although, although, according to the eyes of the world, it will look as if they apparently have been defeated. And that defeat is draped in the imagery of Daniel 7. That defeat is draped in the imagery of Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel has this vision where he sees these four great beasts coming out from the the sea. And those beasts are a lion, a bear, a leopard. And the fourth he describes as terrifying with iron teeth. Now the fact that these four beasts come out from the bottomless pit convey to us what? That they are demonic, right? And they, they rise out from the demonic realm to, to, to serve the, the prince of demons, just as the locusts and the horses did that rose out of the bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 9. Now we're told though in Daniel chapter 7 verse 21, this about the fourth beast, which, re- which represents the fourth kingdom. We're told this, as I looked, this horn made war with the saints, and prevailed over them. This is Daniel 7.21. And as I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. What did we already read in Revelation 13.7? And what did we read in Revelation 11.7? And when they finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war and conquer and kill them. So what is it that we see here in, in the book of Revelation? That John sees the prophecy of Daniel fulfilled in this world's persecution of the church which occurs at the end of history. That's what we see through the anti-Christian spirit of this world as they seek to, to silence God's people through killing them, through driving them underground, through trying to silence them, intimidate them, that they go away into obscurity. We see that through the, the locusts and the horses under the fifth and sixth trumpets as they came out from the bottomless pit, that the beast spirit runs throughout the entire church age. 
Right? It is this beast spirit that is behind all the atrocities that have happened against Christians throughout all of the ages. It is the, the beast spirit that is behind the persecution of God's people and, and will continue to occur until the end of time. But towards the end of history, what we see is that the beast himself will, will manifest himself to openly defeat the church. And he makes war with them and he kills them. And then we read this in verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. Now, brothers and sisters, this isn't to be taken literally in the sense that you know, all the bodies of the church are just going to be laid about in the street, but it, it's meant to depict for us here how it will appear that the church has been defeated in its role as witness to the world. Right? That is what it is meant to symbolize. The apparent defeat of the church in its witness to the world. And she will be treated insignificant and she will be treated with indignity, which non-burial in the ancient world signified. Right? It signified right? indignity. And that's how the, the church will be treated at this time. Now, there are some who who would like to interpret parts of this literally. And so, in interpreting it literally, they would read in verse 8 that as the bodies lie in the street of the great city, that that great city ought to be understood as Jerusalem. Right? Literal Jerusalem, that this, is, that this is happening. But I submit to you that we need to understand this, not as literal Jerusalem, but rather the great city is symbolic of the ungodly world. Right? It's symbolic of the ungodly world. In fact, no other reference to the great city in the book of Revelation refers to Jerusalem. But rather, oftentimes it's referring to Babylon the Great. And so, this is another reason why we ought not to read it literally, but to take the great city figuratively. Now, this great city is likewise called symbolically Sodom in Egypt. Now, why do we think it's called Sodom in Egypt? The reason is to identify the ungodly world with not only wicked Babylon the Great, but also with the other notoriously wicked places of the Old Testament, like Sodom and like Egypt. And what do all of those places have in common? Right? Those are places in which God's people were exiles, or where God's people were living and sojourners, while all the while being persecuted. Right? That's what they all have in common. Right In Sodom, what happened? Sodom was a place of great sexual perversion and idolatry. Sodom was a place in which God's people were, were tempted to be ensnared in indulging themselves with that sexual perversion. Right? What is Egypt? Egypt was a place in which God's people were, were bound and captive and where great violence was committed against them. Right? These both are places that God's people were persecuted. And so verse 8 portrays for us the, the world as resembling these wicked nations. And we see this, don't we, throughout all of history. Think about in the first century itself. Think about the first century as we read about the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. What was going on then? Weren't they not being tempted with sexual immorality? Were they not having constant threats of violence done against them? Think about in our own day, in our own age. Is not our own nation characterized by sexual perversion such as was in Sodom? 
throughout our land today. Is there not the threat of violence and death and imprisonment for Christians all around the globe? Absolutely. The, the spirit of Sodom and Egypt is throughout all of the church age. We see this everywhere throughout the globe. Right? Constantly when we see sexual perversion and when we see idolatry and when we see the persecution of God's people. Now the fact that the word symbolically or it can also be translated spiritually. The fact that the word symbolically or spiritually describes the great city likewise tells us that this is not to be taken literally, but to be taken figuratively. We are to, to read this with spiritual eyes. Now, as we read further, though, it says not only is the great city symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, but then it says this is where the Lord was crucified. And so again, if some who come to this text and, and, and want to look at it literally, they'll say, well, the city where the Lord was crucified, that, that's Jerusalem. And so this is talking about literal Jerusalem. But I believe that's only if we don't read what immediately precedes what has just been said. Right? Where the Lord has been crucified refers back to the immediate clause that precedes it, which is Sodom and Egypt. So that the phrase further describes, along with Sodom and Egypt, the spiritual character of the great city. This is the most natural reading of the syntax. And when I say syntax, what I mean is the arrangement of the words in the sentence. This is the most natural reading of the syntax. As the closest antecedent to where the Lord was crucified is symbolic Sodom and Egypt which means we are to read where the Lord is crucified symbolically or spiritually along with Sodom and Egypt. This conclusion, I think, likewise is supported by the, the usage of the Greek word where. When the word where is used in the book of Revelation, it never refers to literal geography, but always refers to spiritual or symbolic geography. Right? It always does. It refers to realms that God protects. Right? Revelation 12.6 is an example of that. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. That is spiritual. I'm not talking about a literal place. Likewise, it also is used for where Satan or his allies dwell. We see this in Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so we see whenever where is used, it's not talking about literal geography, but rather it is talking about realms. It is talking about things spiritual, things symbolic or where Satan and his allies dwell. And so we see that this worldly city is spiritually then called Sodom. It's spiritually called Egypt. It's spiritually called Jerusalem. Because just like Sodom and Egypt, Jerusalem is a wicked place. Perhaps even more wicked than Sodom and Egypt. For this is the place that our Lord was rejected and crucified. Even further, we see how this city represents not a literal place, but a 
the whole ungodly world based upon what we read and what follows. We read that some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations, which is a universal reference to the world, will gaze upon the dead and not allow them to be placed in a tomb. And so what we see here is that the godless world who, who serves the devil right, participates in the persecution of the church. And we see that throughout the world. Right? He uses the godless world to persecute His people. This is what we see here. Now, the apparent de- defeat only lasts for a brief time. 3.5 days. Three and a half days to be exact. Now, perhaps this 3.5 days is connecting our apparent defeat with the three days of Jesus' apparent defeat as He lie in the tomb. And so just as Jesus lay apparently defeated and the world rejoiced at it, so too, for three and a half days, the church will appear defeated and the world will rejoice after it. Or perhaps it, it may be more connected with 42 months and 1260 days and 3.5 years. If we think about it, 3.5 years is the whole church age. So this, this apparent defeat lasts 3.5 days. So instead of the whole church age, it, it occurs just over a small portion of time. It could be, it could be saying that as well, but it is only an apparent defeat. Because we read in verse 11 this. But after the three and a half days, a, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God in heaven. This leads us to our third and our final point then, which is the restoration of the two witnesses. The restoration of the two witnesses. After this short time, what are we told? God breathes life into them so that they arise and He calls them, come up here. What is depicted for us here is at the end of the age, right? God's ultimate restoration and deliverance of His church. Bringing them to glory. Vindicating them before all the peoples of the world. But the betrayal of the resurrection comes from Ezekiel chapter 37. Right? This, this portrayal of them rising up comes from Ezekiel 37. And in Ezekiel 37, what do we find? It's a prophecy concerning the restoration of Israel after Babylonian exile. And there, what is Israel likened to in Ezekiel 37? They are likened to corpses who are brought to life. That is symbolic. They weren't literally corpses brought to life. But they were likened to corpses brought to life. This is exactly what is conveyed for us in our text here. Right? The church is laying all upon the ground, all in the street, and they are brought to life. And so what we see here is that John sees the fulfillment of Ezekiel 37 and the restoration of Israel. We find that fulfillment now in the church. Right? Not that the church literally lay dead and be literally raised to physical life, but rather, although they appeared defeated, although they appeared to be deserted by God for a time, 
God restores His church. And now a great reversal occurs. For those who rejoiced at the church's demise are now enveloped in fear as they see the Lord raise up for Himself His church once more. Now, there's a can be a difference in opinion in verse 11 and in verse 12. As the, this life is breathed into him, and the two witnesses are told to, to come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud. Because verses 7 to 13 is talking about the end of history, there are many even reformed amillennial interpreters who will say that this is First Thessalonians 4. Right, this is the rising of the dead to, to life, to be with the Lord. I don't take that position uh, because I think that we ought to interpret this text in light of other parts of Revelation. And it's in fact that same language come up here that is used elsewhere in the book of Revelation. And we didn't interpret it literally there. And so I don't think we ought to interpret it literally here as well. If you want to look at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, This is the same thing that John is told. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open to heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after that. And so it's it's a symbolic coming up here. It's It's not a literal rapture of the church at this time. But the cloud likewise in heaven itself opening up I think likewise is symbolic to the, to the cloud that we read about in Revelation chapter 10. Remember in Revelation 10, what does Jesus come in? He comes wrapped in a cloud, giving to the church their prophetic call. Well now, what are they, they breathe, they have the Spirit breathe life into them and they raise them to the cloud, which signifies God's divine approval of their testimony and of their witness before the world. And that's what it signifies. And remember, this occurs between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. So that the ultimate triumph of the church coincides with the ultimate defeat of this world. The vision pushes us to the very edge of of human history just prior to the return of Christ, which we'll read about next time. But we see that part of the world succumbs to to the beginnings of the final judgment. For the sake of time, I won't go into it, but we see an earthquake here. In verse 13, a great earthquake occurring, killing many. That's the exact same thing we read about in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12 to 17, under the sixth trumpet, which brought us to the precipice of the end of history. And so what we need to see, brothers and sisters, is that what is described for us in our text today, we see on smaller scales throughout all of history, really. Right? The Jews in the first century thought Christianity was defeated when they crucified our Messiah. right? Saul of Tarsus thought that Christianity would be defeated when Stephen was stoned and they imprisoned Christians at that time. The Roman Empire thought that Christianity was defeated over the first three centuries through the killing and execution of the Christian church during that time. China, 60 years ago, thought that Christianity was defeated once and for all in that land. But what do we see time and time again happening. right? God, by His power, restores and raises up His people once more so that they may fulfill their prophetic task and call of preaching the Gospel to the ends of the earth until the end. 
And then, at that time, Christ will come in glory. And so this ought to compel us as a church to remain faithful to the Lord no matter how fierce our opposition, knowing that God will never let the church fail. When in our society, people continue to turn against the church, do not be discouraged. Even when it appears that the world may be winning, God will restore His church and ultimately bring final vindication at His second advent. Brothers and sisters, know this, that God will have the final word. He will have the final say. And so right now, the world may rejoice believing that it is winning, but we know that the gates of hell shall not prevail. The church has existed and survived for 2,000 years, and it will continue to exist and survive until Christ returns. But it will be done through struggle. But you and I and all of the church have the right man by our side, the man Christ Jesus, who stands beside all of His church throughout all of history. So that as we suffer, brothers and sisters, let us all the more rejoice, knowing that the church will get the final victory at the conclusion of this age. And at that time, the church together will celebrate, will rejoice with all of God's people in the worship of He who sits on the throne and the Lamb who sits at His side in the age to come. Please let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word is so trustworthy and true. Your Word is is comforting. It's consoling. And it strengthens the hearts of Your people. We pray, Lord, that You would use Your Word this day to do that very thing. That we might not be discouraged in a world that persecutes the Christian faith and attempts to stamp it out. But rather, Lord, that You would remind us each and every day that You have a plan for Your people that you have a plan for your church. And please then equip us to boldly and confidently proclaim uh, the message of the Gospel, proclaim and bear witness to the name of Christ until the very end, knowing that ultimate victory will come for the church when Christ returns in glory. And so, Father, we pray all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.